Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When Diplomacy Fails presents. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello when and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One, Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered look at the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, which originally aired as one episode on the 27th of November 2012. Welcome to the podcast. As ever, guys, my name is Zach, and you're very welcome to our continuing Remastered special. So when I first came across the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, five years ago, I was immediately taken in by the sheer significance of it. The fact that the two empires, eternal enemies and constantly dueling rivals in Russia and Turkey, fought for one last time in the 19th century before the First World War, to me made this war important all by itself. Yet, it was everything that went on alongside the war that oozed significance. Britain, for one, placed as it was under the premiership of Benjamin Disraeli at this time, played a pivotal role in ensuring the war ended when it did and on the terms that it did, but it wasn't until I revisited this period of history in more detail, during Britain Goes to War, that I truly grasped just how close Britain came to actually weighing in on the side of the Turks and, in, in the process, launching a world war, or at least a massive war with Turkey that a lot of the powers in Europe would feel pressurised to get involved in. The 1870s in Britain were a time of radical and fundamental change in industry and empire, but also in politics. 
imperialism and competition, paired as they were with the frequency of colonial wars that seemed to flare up in abundance, had the effect of lessening the seriousness of war in general. Disraeli's reasons for engaging with Russia, Britain's enemy in the Crimean War a generation before and its Cold War rival for the last few decades, read as unmistakably familiar to us today. National honour, the strategic interests, the balance of power, and in the name of alliances not quite understood or accepted either by the public or the political opposition. Britain Goes to War taught me that Britain came close to preempting its behaviour in the First World War's July crisis by nearly 50 years, yet the lessons and incredible events which the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 covers are virtually forgotten today. So can the war still teach us something? What does it tell us about the people that led Britain at certain critical stages in time? What I found more incredible than either Disraeli's actions or those of his allies were the moves made by those that aimed at keeping Britain out of the war, the individuals that argued determinedly against the Prime Minister's interpretation of what Britain's role in the world was, or what her obligations to her citizens and realm compelled. The most prominent such individuals was a man of an esteemed political pedigree and family, and his name was Edward Henry Stanley, but you know him better as the 15th Earl of Derby. His father had been Lord Derby, who had been the Prime Minister three times, and leader of the Conservatives for almost 20 years. Edward himself was the eldest of one of the wealthiest landowning families in Britain, if not the wealthiest. He represented Conservative in literally every sense, and he had formed firm partnerships and friendships with his peers, one of whom was the wily and exotic Disraeli, who he had met in the years before. But try as hard as he might, Darby could never reconcile his political and personal belief system with this dramatic new change that Disraeli was trying to bring about in 1870s Britain, especially with regard to foreign policy. The old conservative obsession with good governance and minimal obligations and traditional policies had been replaced by Disraeli, who rode the waves of popular enthusiasm to insist upon aggressive diplomacy, assertive politics, and consistent action in every foreign sphere. It was to lead to what historians have since termed as splendid isolation, and it was as every bit the antithesis of what Edward Stanley, simply termed Darby like his father had been, believed in, at the slowly building rift between these former friends and the impact it had on British foreign policy on the world stage was undeniably one of the major themes of my Britain Goes to War series, so if you're looking for a more in-depth examination of those two, you should definitely check that out. With this remastered look at the Russo-Turkish War, you might be wondering what exactly I can offer that was new from the Britain Goes to War series. Well, in this case, I hoped to balance my preference for covering the disraeli Derby breakdown as well as the actual war itself. The story that emerges will hopefully satisfy everyone, and after all, it does form an essential building block of our story in the 19th century, as, five years ago, Zach did build towards the First World War. The aim is, just like it was five years ago, you'll feel better equipped to understand all that this forgotten era holds, instead of the minimal examination I managed the first time round. It should be added that because of my dipping into the First World War for various reasons, which included the July Crisis Project and my recently released book looking at national honour and Britain's entry into the First World War, I feel that this period of time, in particular the actual war itself and Britain's decision eventually at least to stay out of it, where the peacemakers technically won, led by Darby against many of his own party members, 
can it can help us understand the crucial elements that were missing from 1914 when no Lord Derby was present and Britain hurled itself into the abyss just as Disraeli hoped it would here. In both cases, the men at the helm of the British Empire and all she represented believed they were acting in the country's interest. They believed they were patriots and believed that history would justify their actions. We will do our best to remain impartial as always, while also doing our best to uncover the forgotten heroes of the story, as well as the forgotten villains. But before we jump into it guys, a quick reminder about who we are and how you can help. You see When Diplomacy Fails is running wild. By the time you're listening to this, I'm almost certainly married, I'm back from my honeymoon and settling into my brand new life. But at the time of recording this, everything's a bit crazy. It all took a long time to get sorted out, and even though I really did enjoy it, I have this idea that five weeks to run wild will really be the catalyst that helps when diplomacy fails get to the next level. By that I mean releasing new content, investing in other areas, expanding into places you weren't expecting, releasing new content. I know I said that already, but I'm going to underline that there. You can be a part of this period of immense growth, or at least I hope it will be growth, in When Diplomacy Fails. We don't want to be the sick man of the podcasting world, a la Turkey. We want to be the ambitious, growing, and aggressive, (laughs) not really, but we want to do well in podcasting. We want to get bigger, bigger than we've ever been before, and we want to bring history to loads of different people. The best way to ensure that that happens is to be fit. But if you want to do a little bit extra, you become a patron of When Diplomacy Fails and support us to bring you the goods. And I do mean goods, not just in audio form, but genuine actual goods. Everything from fridge magnets to mugs to t-shirts to books. You know the drill, guys. Go to wdfpodcast.com, click on the Patreon button, or go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. It's all there, and anything you can contribute to me, to this podcast, you will actually be helping the school of history, I'd like to think, because you'll be helping this podcast. And the more people we reach, the better. Because this is when diplomacy fails. And this is where history thrives. So thanks for listening, guys. And without any further ado, I will now take you to the year 1856. It is knowledge that influences and equalises the social condition of man that gives to all, however different, their political position, passions which are in common and enjoyments which are universal. Benjamin Disraeli So this podcast should help you understand the Turkish question, sometimes called the Eastern question, sometimes called the Russian question, which would become such an important part of the policies of the European nations in the years leading up to World War I. This question or idea was basically the theory that if the declining Ottoman Empire was allowed to collapse, then the sudden absence of an empire in the region, particularly in the Balkans, which had been under an empire for so long, would result in the empires surrounding these lands fighting over the spoils. If you joined us for the Crimean War, then good job, and you'll hopefully recognise the idea that Turkey needed to be propped up from that war, and that the other powers couldn't just stand idly by while Russia or any other power stepped in to challenge her, defeat her, and upset that precariously balanced state of affairs. All of this shouldn't seem alien to you, even if you've listened to a good bit of When Diplomacy Fails' back catalogue before. Yet, at the same time, the Russo-Turkish War, though it is possible to see it as a continuation of the Crimean War, 
contains a critically distinguishing feature which sets it apart from the previous war. Above all, and this has to be emphasised, Britain would not go to war with Russia during the course of this conflict between the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. Instead, Britain was forced to watch Russia fulfil her worst strategic nightmares, and she was largely forced to do so while diplomatically isolated and divided at home. Achieving satisfaction for British interests without reverting to the sword was a genuine challenge for British policymakers during this time, and it is for those reasons that in the space of a few years, diplomats have a field day during this war, and as a result, of course, so do we, covering all their activities. Russia had been at the centre of the Ottoman question for a long time. For as long as Russians could walk, they had been told about how the Ottoman Turks mistreated the Orthodox Christians under their rule, and how the destiny of the motherland was to absorb all such peoples, for their own safety of course, even if that meant war with Ottoman Turkey, and not scratch that, especially if that means war with Ottoman Turkey. War with the Ottoman Empire looked to have become a pastime of bored Russian czars by the time of the Crimean War in 1853. Russian policy makers were content to chip away slowly at the fringes of Ottoman rule, while always maintaining its cause was a truly just one, i.e. a war in the name of those persecuted Christians suffering under the Sultan's rule. This idea of protecting the Orthodox Christians in the Middle East, the Balkans and everywhere else had not disappeared by the time our war would break out in 1877. It had merely been joined by another issue which held perhaps more potency for Ottoman interests and which was, by and large, far more popular to the Russian people. The idea of pan-Slavism. You might not be surprised to learn that this idea was a lot like the one which concerned the Orthodox Christians. In short, it involved gathering as many Slavic peoples together under the Russian fold for their own protection. It was a handy guise to operate under, and no doubt many Russian policymakers truly believed in such a cause, but the Russian policy of trying to absorb the Slavic peoples always seemed to come at the expense of the Ottomans, and always seemed to result in the absorption of some pretty sweet Ottoman clay. Pan-Slavism could be defined as a policy in pursuit of so many different ends that it was difficult for British policymakers to actually predict where St. Petersburg would go next. What they knew in London was that the Tsar could use Pan-Slavism to fan the flames of nationalist sentiment in her lands, and that by doing so she could have cause for expansion. Pan-Slavism today often conjures up images of the First or Second World War, where Slavs of every country were pitted against the Teutonic Germanic West, In the 1870s, the ideology was not quite as well defined as that, in that Pan-Slavism hadn't identified Germany or Germans or Teutonic Europe as its natural opponents. Instead, Pan-Slavism could rouse Russian citizens, and it was then up to the discretion of the Tsar to decide where to direct that roused fury. Abuses of Orthodox clergy in far-off lands? Sounds like Pan-Slavism. Time to roll back any reforms in the name of the greater political good? Sounds like Pan-Slavism. Capture Constantinople to fulfil the manifest destiny of the Russian people and make Istanbul Tsargrad? Sounds like Pan-Slavism. You see the pattern here. Taken as Russia was with the unique combinations of nationalism found in the Pan-Slavism idea, frustrated by previous attempts to achieve its national destiny, see Crimea, and then outraged by abuses committed against other Slavic peoples in Bulgaria and against Orthodox clergy, St. Petersburg was perhaps at its most dangerous and ambitious yet, by the time war did break out, but we are getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Russia was not the happiest of nations after the Crimean War. 
It was clear that the country had overstepped, and as a result, it had had to fight a costly war against Great Britain and France, not to mention the Ottoman Empire, who altogether seemed determined to prevent Russia realising its dream to cement itself on the world stage. To many Russians the whole thing would have seemed a bit unfair. The Anglo-French alliance and the war which followed would have appeared to be a massive interference in Russian interests. I mean, the war did take place in the Crimea, which was technically Russian-owned land. And I mean, just as it seemed like the destiny of all Russians were about to be fulfilled, this massive Anglo-French force just arrives on the horizon. But the average Russian citizen, much like his Anglo-French counterpart, would not really or necessarily have been privy to the grand strategic interests of the day in the 18th. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 50s. Little did they appreciate that it would have been disastrous for Europe had one single power gained hegemony over the Dardanelles, especially if it was a strong naval one, as Russia was trying to make itself into, who could ratchet up duties and blockade those that disagreed with their own policies. A lot of lucrative trade passed through the Straits. It was a key landmark on the world, one which many states used daily to ferry goods and receive information. The Ottomans were just weak enough to be docile enough to be pressured enough into making the whole thing profitable for everyone, especially Britain, which is why Britain is key to this whole situation. Britain had fingers in all sorts of pies, and was constantly watching for any changes that might upset the good things that they had going. The theory, as I mentioned, was that if a strong country took over the Dardanelles, then that key junction of the world would be held to ransom, and, having extracted all that country could from the others, would only keep expanding into the Mediterranean and perhaps even into Africa. In the years that followed the Crimean War, the British government received much criticism for its handling of the crisis, and fair enough, lives were unnecessarily lost, men were not fit for command yet held positions of great importance, see the charge of the Light Brigade, and individuals allowed their egos to cloud their judgement at the expense of Allied operations, see charge of the Light Brigade. The changes which came to the British system after this war meant that high society could no longer buy a command in the British army, and the whole endeavour had in fact blackened the reputation of the aristocracy at the same time. What the war also did though, and an underrated result of it, 
was that it imbued the British citizens with a sense of Britain's strategic place in the world. Where the Crimean War called men to do their national duty, the Russo-Turkish War would inspire much belligerence among the British populace, as the Eastern Question and the stunting of Russia, which they had fought for, soon became a wholly national pastime. Two decades after the Crimean War, any suggestion that Britain abandon its role as arbiter of the Eastern Question was not just anathema to Britain's strategic interest, it was counter to the romantic wishes of every patriotic citizen in the Empire. The idea that only Britain could solve the Eastern Question, or at least pose a temporary answer to it, was one which many British citizens felt quite passionately at this time. To question that duty, to question the idea that Britain must prevent Russia from gaining the Dardanelles by any means necessary, meant that you were questioning Britain's role in world affairs, and that meant that you could be held up for ridicule, or worse, as Darby would find out. As the peacemakers were to find out during this conflict, this was another crucial difference between the Russo-Turkish War and its Crimean predecessor. The difference being that the mob believed it was now as well informed as the man who sat in cabinet. Both sections of society felt their patriotic obligations just as strongly as the other. Of course it was convenient that the fulfilment of Russian destiny was this nightmare of Britain for much of the 19th century, with or without the citizens' interest, and it meant that the two empires were at loggerheads for the majority of that century, and even coming up into the next one. Russian bitterness had only made the situation worse. Though the war in the Crimea had always been meant to destroy Turkey and perhaps wring a historic level of concessions from her, the result instead was that Russia limped out of the theatre, having lost important fortifications on its Black Sea fleet. Even Austria, whom Russia had helped suppress its own form of the 1848 revolution, sided cautiously against Russia as a strong neutral. Austria was unlikely to go to war with Russia in the 1850s, but so long as Russia saw the potential damage that fresh Austrian troops could do to their war plans, the animosity was always going to be there, and it meant that once the Crimean War was over, Prussia was realistically the only state that Russia could convincingly call an ally. This was, as we've seen, mostly the work of Bismarck, who had advocated a policy of non-intervention in the Crimea, even when he wasn't at the stage when he could realistically give such orders. Bismarck had his own plans, as you'll know if you listen to the previous remastered episodes, and they by and large included Russia. Bismarck was going to need Russia, both for the immediate and long-term future of his soon-to-be powerhouse of a state. Bismarck has hovered in and out of our narrative for this remastered series, as he did throughout 2012 when I released these episodes for the first time. Bismarck's calling didn't truly come until the early 1860s, when he positioned himself as Chancellor of Prussia and simultaneously controlled its foreign relations, but in the 1850s he still saw the importance, while serving as Prussia's ambassador to Russia, of keeping St. Petersburg sweet and presenting Berlin as the only friend that the Russians could truly count on. This policy of open arms, which Bismarck promoted towards Russia once he had a concrete say in how Prussia was governed, right up to his death in 1898 when he criticised the recent departure from an alliance with Russia, demonstrated that wily statesman's interpretation of Russia's place in the world and what Russia could do for Prussia on that stage. In the Bismarckian wars to come in the 1860s, if you'll allow me to fast forward, Bismarck was able to cash in on this friendship to ensure that Russia remained at arm's length, thereby enabling Berlin to operate against its rivals without fear of a Russian army arriving on their doorstep. 
Bismarck obviously knew what he was doing, as wars against Denmark, Austria and France propelled Prussia onto the world stage as Germany, the German Empire of all the German-speaking peoples, the clearest example of a nation-state in Europe. Russia could expect to seek the same favourable treatment from this new Germany in return. Playing favours with your neighbours was a favourite tactic of Bismarck, and it is interesting to see such different foreign policies enacted by Russia's neighbours. 1860s Britain, on the other hand, experienced a number of weak governments as the Liberal Party led by William Gladstone swapped places with Benjamin Disraeli, who himself became Prime Minister, for the first time that is, for only a year in 1868. This first taste of power prepared Disraeli for the Conservative landslide that was to come in 1874 in the government that would lead us up to the Russo-Turkish War, and where Disraeli represented his party as the refreshed and patriotic group of individuals determined to challenge Britain's slump abroad and get a handle of European affairs. Part of Disraeli's later belligerence, and the unique way in which he transformed what it meant to be a conservative statesman, can be sourced from his perceptions of the Russian Empire, and the necessity he felt in challenging the eternal threat which St. Petersburg seemed to pose to British security. Looking objectively, Disraeli could have found far worse matches for an ally in Europe than Prussia. Although Bismarck began tearing up the rule book in the 1860s, family provided the first and most obvious incentive to avoid awkward questions and try to make a deal. It was the King of Prussia, Wilhelm I, who authorised the marriage of his son, Frederick, to Victoria, the first-born daughter of Victoria and Albert, reigning monarchs of Britain. Tying Britain and Prussia together by marriage seemed only sensible, considering the very German blood which the two monarchs on all sides shared. Frederick and Victoria Jr. were married in 1858, and from that point the two sought to reform and apply their liberal, arguably even British ideas of government, to the burgeoning German kingdom. Of course, ironically, since he had approved of the marriage, these moves put them in conflict with Bismarck, who since 1862 would lead Prussia as its chancellor. Any question then of an alliance with Prussia would have to go through him, and Bismarck did his utmost to block any attempts at reform by the princely couple, one of the reasons being that a shake-up of the Prussian leadership would mean the end of his career as a conservative Prussian statesman, but also the replacement of a Russian alliance with a British one. Mindful of the grand plans he had for Prussia in the 1860s, Bismarck couldn't afford to be removed or be on bad terms with the Russians, especially not for an alliance with London from which he could construe little benefit for his designs. This mode of thinking became Bismarck's motto, even after he had transformed Prussia into Germany by 1871, thus massively upending the map of Europe and ruining everyone's plans in the process. With Disraeli ascending the greasy pole three years later in 1874, on the surface the two conservative statesmen had a lot in common, but in reality a German alliance would have to wait. While Disraeli depended on the antagonism towards Russia for his strategic plans and for those of his party, Bismarck relied on Russia's friendship for Germany's national security. Bismarck wasn't the only figure to see things in this light, though. The Russian Tsar Alexander II, who himself was an interesting character and something of a liberal, at least by Russian standards, planned to use his own chancellor, Bismarck's equivalent, a man by the name of Alexander Gorchakov, to seal the deal between Russia and Germany. The idea that Germany needed an alliance with Russia was thus heavily influenced by Bismarck, as Heo Holborn in his book History of Modern Germany explained when he wrote, 
Bismarck continued to believe that it was absolutely imperative to do everything possible to maintain close relations with Russia. He dreaded war with Russia. It was difficult to beat Russia, and even if she was defeated, her millions of people as well as her vast territory would allow her an early comeback. In addition, war with Russia would endanger the monarchical principle and undoubtedly reopen the Polish question. As long as Germany could secure Russia's cooperation, she could disregard any French threat and would automatically become the full leader within the dual alliance. If Germany had only one ally, she would be compelled to honour its wishes, and Bismarck still did not wish to be drawn into Balkan questions. Two key things can be taken from this extract. The first is the very clear policy put forward by Bismarck, which will become Germany's staple over the next two decades. Isolate France by cozying up to Russia. The second was the notable refusal on behalf of Bismarck to allow Germany to become involved in the complex and mind-numbingly frustrating politics of the Balkans. Where all this concerns us, and you might be wondering how I managed to squeeze Bismarck into absolutely every single episode, even when I remaster them, I promise I have a genuine reason this time. Because in 1877, the year that concerns us, Bismarck was Germany's chancellor, and he was emphatically determined to not enter the war against the Russians. Not only that, but his own favour towards the Russians ensured that a level of coolness existed between London and Berlin, in spite of the efforts of the princely couple, Frederick and Victoria Jr. Bismarck was in the process of making at least some sort of formal agreement between Austria-Hungary and Russia at this stage, demonstrated in the Three Emperors Convention of September 1872 that took place in Berlin. The significance of this event is explained by Jonathan Steinberg in his book, Bismarck, A Life, when he wrote... The visit of the three emperors went extremely well and established a foreign policy construction which remained a set and fixed element of Bismarck's foreign policy to the moment of his resignation. How much he planned the outcome can never be established. He was a brilliant diplomatic chess player who always saw moves well in advance, but whether he foresaw the future three emperors league cannot be known. On the other hand, Bismarck had always supported a Russian connection, had established intimate relations with the Russian royal family and had enjoyed his embassy in St. Petersburg more than any other posting. He never forgot how much Prussia and its success depended on Russian support. Saying this, though, in spite of the positivity which Steinberg emphasises in the German moves, Bismarck knew that the agreement with Russia couldn't last. Again, it was the Balkan problem. Again, it was the Balkan problem that threatened to ruin everything, because Russia had interests in the Balkans which directly contradicted Austria's own aims there, but so long as the Ottoman Empire was able to hold the territory that both Austria and Russia coveted, there was for the moment no problem. Unfortunately for Bismarck though, having created and signed the Three Emperors League on the 22nd of October 1873, the Balkan situation was about to get a lot more complicated. By way of his signing this league, Bismarck had now implicated himself in the turmoil which was to come. Though he despised international complications which interfered with his plans, Bismarck would soon be forced to accept, just like Disraeli would, that you can't keep a good Russian down. In the latter half of the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire entered into an era of decline which was so rapid and ferocious that the nations surrounding the Ottoman territories almost couldn't seem to keep up. Nationalism was a plague for the Ottomans. In Greece, it had led to war with Russia and eventual Greek independence by 1829. 
in the Middle East it had resulted in bloody insurgencies conducted by horse and camel riding tribesmen, and now in the Balkans it was causing yet more problems. Bosnia and Herzegovina had thrown off the Ottoman yoke with a nod of approval from Russia and had begun their wars for independence along the same lines as Serbia had done in the early half of the 19th century, during spring 1875. This put Bismarck in an awkward position, especially in April 1876, when atrocities carried out by the Ottomans in Bulgaria were condemned by Russia, France, Austria and Italy as unlawful and heinous crimes which demanded response. The massacre which did occur in the Bulgarian city of Batak, in which an estimated 1,500 women and children were burnt alive in a church, provided the Russian Tsar with the moral cause and justification he was searching for. Surely Bismarck's Germany would not stand in the way of Russia coming to the aid of Bulgarians, Bosnians, Herzegovinians and even Serbians who were trying so hard to assert their right to self-rule? Pan-Slavism was back with a vengeance, and it seemed all Tsar Alexander II had to do was wait for the moment to strike. So after setting the scene here, guys, in the next episode we will examine how the interests and concerns of the key players in Europe led to increased tensions and inflexibility, just as a great conflict seemed destined to erupt. Doesn't that sound especially juicy? I hope you'll join me for the next episode, guys. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll be seeing y'all very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.